Each week, Richard and Father Mark present a rigorous discussion of the Bible in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. Over 24,000 episodes are downloaded each month at no charge. Please consider marking your level of support with a one-time donation or by pledging a small amount per episode. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. For as long as religion has been around, people have come forward with a single destructive question. Oh, religious leader, what does our religion say, or what does our religious leader say about X? One way or another, people eventually find someone who can provide clarity on issue X. Then, everybody gives a big sigh of relief until someone comes along with a different opinion about said issue X. By now, I'm sure our podcast listeners are asking the real question, namely, how does St. Paul solve the question of issue X? Well, he explains, I think the answer is X. But then again, I think the answer is Y. But then again, it could be X. But then again, if it's not, or if maybe it is, now keep in mind, this is just my opinion, but I think Y is also fine, so long as you keep your priorities straight. Richard and I discuss 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 to 40. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 109 of the Bible as Literature podcast. So we've been working through 1 Corinthians, and it occurred to me that there might be a way of explaining the tension in Paul's letter. What exactly is going on with love? And what is happening with the community and the gospel and prioritization? These are all concepts that Father Mark and I have been discussing because we're trying to figure out the geography, the topography of Paul's argument. And when we talk about love, we don't talk about love the way that the culture talks about love. And this is something we just have to keep emphasizing time and time again. Love cannot be understood without submission and the cross. Every time that you are to love, you are supposed to submit. How are you supposed to submit? The way that Jesus submitted to his Father. This is what it means to follow the law of love. It has nothing to do with valentines. It has nothing to do with roses or red. Or feelings. And feelings. There's nothing like this. And the cross functions to shame you, to prove to you every time you look at the cross that you have not yet submitted. You have not loved to the extent that Jesus loved. And so the cross is a shame that puts you to shame because you have not yet loved. And this is what Paul is emphasizing in this chapter, that if you are going to follow the gospel, if your priorities are correct, then you're going to be loving this way. But if you're not loving this way, it's because your priorities are not correct. You still think you have a little bit of wiggle room. But guess what? 
Jesus had no wiggle room on the cross. The way to capture what you're saying is to go back to the foundation of Pauline pedagogy. Culturally, we like to talk about love in abstraction. We deal with love as a philosophical concept, but what Paul does in his letters, certainly in 1 Corinthians, but elsewhere, is he demonstrates the function of love with power. He doesn't just say, well, it's all about love, let's go home now. He presents to you the cross, as you were just saying, and then takes you step by step through this lengthy, methodical, ruthless argument that demonstrates to you what love is by putting you down, by putting you in the position of someone who loves. Despite yourself, if Paul were to talk about love philosophically and say we have this concept love and at the end God is love and it's all about love, if he were to talk that way in his letters, everyone would walk away worshiping their projection, their idol of what love is or what it means to them philosophically, theologically, whatever. And they would all be satisfied in their own heart. But that's not what he does. What he does is what a rowing coach does at college. He says, okay, you sit in position one in the boat, you sit in position two, you sit in position three, etc. Everybody take your oar. You move your arm this way, and then you pull. But Paul, I thought we were here to talk about love. No, we're here to row the boat. But I don't want to be in position two. I want to be in position one. It's not your place to debate what your status is. And if you keep talking that way, I'm going to put you in a worse position in the boat. And so forth and so on. So at that point, he is making the discipline of the instruction of how to row the priority pedagogically. Yet, we all know the real priority is the cross and the love of the cross. But he can't just talk about the love of the cross as a concept. He has to demonstrate it in power. This is the tension in the letter between the sophist and the rabbi. The sophist is interested in concepts and words of wisdom and elegant ideas. The rabbi is interested in showing you the power of love by making you row until your arms fall off. That's the key. And here Paul is acting as your coach and whipping you and training you so that no matter what's going on in your head, your muscle memory by the end of the letter will know what love is. Right. The community cannot move ahead unless everyone is rowing. And instead of row, row, Paul is saying, love, 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 love. And my arms are tired. Well, you're out of sequence. If you're loving out of sequence, it means, one, you're not listening to me. You're rowing You're loving the way you think you should. And guess what? The whole boat is going to go askew if you don't love in submission in the way that I'm telling you to love. It's very prescriptive. After Pascha, I had done obviously a lot of preaching during the Lenten season. I went to take my kids to swimming practice. And I saw my daughter, who must have been six or seven at the time, my oldest. So this was a few years back. I saw her struggling in the water. And her coach was there helping her, showing her how to move her legs and her arms, how to position her body. And I saw the word coach on the back of his jacket. And it was, to me, a scriptural sign that his function is a godly function. That what he was doing by giving practical instruction is the heart of the matter. 
and it is the most sacred duty that anyone has is to give practical instruction because wisdom is about showing people how to live that is what Paul is talking about and that teaching when the coach teaches I mean this will help kind of bring down to earth something else that teaching instills the spirit of the coach in your daughter when your daughter is moving her arms and moving her legs correctly it's because she is now moving according to the spirit that was given to her by the coach yes it's the spirit that animates her arms and her legs so paul can see if you actually heard his lesson and are following his lesson if he can see your arms and your legs are moving according to the law of love now again i'm going to keep saying it the law of love cannot be divorced from submission or from the cross. Or from rowing the boat in a position of shame. Not the position you want, but the position the coach tells you you need to play. You cannot go to the coach and say, I had a dream and I felt God calling me to be the point guard. Well, with all due respect, you're seven foot two and you're clumsy, but you're muscular and you have a decent shot. So you're not going to be the point guard. Get over yourself. This is your position. You're going to be center. Or you're going to be down under the basket. But that's not what I'm called to. That's not what I want to do. That's not my idea. Well, we're not interested in your idea because I'm the coach. That's all he's doing here. It's not a big deal. And it occurred to me that this might be the best way to reach an American audience. Because one of the last places we still understand this is in sports. Because we take sports seriously. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called, which is where we left off last time. So the condition of being a slave or a free, being married or celibate, whichever one you are, don't be so concerned with the state you're in. Be concerned with how you are performing the gospel. Oh, I like to be at the front of the boat. Well, you know, you got here too late. We already had someone sitting there. But but just row. I'll show you how to row you'll make a fine contribution. Now, concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. It's helpful if you remain single, but it's fine if you don't remain single. It's great if you can stay a virgin because you can stay focused, but if you can't, no big deal. Because once he says it's better to be a virgin, he's undermining the gospel. That's why he has to step down from the throne of Moses to speak. Mm -hmm. He's giving his opinion, but if you take his opinion here as command, you're going to twist the gospel into a tool of division. It's circumcision. Right. It becomes circumcision and suddenly you're going to say, well, Paul said it's better to be a virgin. Well, what about people who have sex? Is something wrong with them? Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. So no one is better than the other, and your state in this temporary world under distress, you know, under pressure, is a temporary state. Fine, you're married, you're not married, you're a virgin, you're not a virgin. As long as your priority is the gospel, everything can be made to do what everything was made to do. Don't try to do anything except follow the gospel. Don't try to get divorced. Don't try to get married. Try to follow the gospel. Put all of your energy into this commandment. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. 
Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. Look, if you can get around the difficulty of getting married and having kids, fine. Not so that you can then drink lattes and take in extra movies and enjoy life as a single person. No. So that you have more time to study, to read, to write, to serve the poor, to visit people in prison. Because those things are not optional. Those are not identity-based. Those are actions. When I went to Mount Athos and I was bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and I met a monk and I said, Oh, how did you decide to be a monk at Mount Athos? And he was a simple man from the village and he said, You know, I wasn't really interested in getting married and having a family, so this seemed like a good thing to do. <laughs> but, I say, but I say, brethren... The time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. All of one's focus must be on the gospel, not on your feelings not on what you're using, not on what you're buying, not on even your family, if you can do this without undermining the gospel. But your entire focus must be on the gospel. And doesn't this sound like Ecclesiastes? Everything is passing away. It sounds like Isaiah. Everything is passing away but the word of God. So what are you spending your time doing? And your effort and everything. What are you spending your life on? Because your life is draining out as we speak. What do you want to spend time on other than the word of life? Do we have time? That is how Paul talks and that is how he teaches. And that is where the gospel hurts. When you come from a tradition that prides itself on artwork and music. And Paul is saying, with all due respect... We're here to talk about the death of Jesus Christ. You lose the sense of urgency when your focus isn't 100% on the gospel, when your priorities are not straight. For the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord that she may be holy both in body and spirit, but one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord, and this is not endorsing monasticism and ridiculing marriage. It's actually demonstrating that the work of the gospel is harder for those who choose to be married. It's interesting how Paul argues in this chapter very differently than how he argues in other chapters because he says, don't be married, but it's okay if you're married. It sounds like he's undermining himself. If you take any of these verses out of context, you're going to have a problem because it's very nuanced. He's trying to say, the more you can be focused on the gospel, the better. You can be focused on the gospel when you are married, but it's harder. Now, is Paul against hard work? By no means. But he's saying you can be more focused. That's why above, when it talks about the immorality by which people then decided to start getting married, when it's pornea, it's not pornea, sexual immorality, is talking about loyalty. 
If you are married, as it says here, your loyalty is divided between following the Lord exclusively and also pleasing your wife. Now, as you said before, by doing what your wife needs, you are following the gospel, but it can be more limiting, perhaps. So this is where he says something about being celibate and a preference for that, but he always backs up. And the reason why he backs up is because one group is not allowed to feel that they are superior to the other group. The celibates are not allowed to be superior to the marrieds, and the marrieds are not allowed to be superior to the celibates because it will undermine the community. Which is why this argument is so beautiful, because it implies, as I said on the one hand, that it's harder to follow the gospel as a married person, but at the same time, it questions the loyalty of the married person. So just as the celibate one cannot say monasticism or celibacy is better, the married one can't say that either. They can't say their choice is better. No one's choice or position in life, whether it's a choice or it's your fate that you accept by circumstance, whatever position you have in the boat, you're all the same, no matter how it plays out in God's eyes. In the old country, people got married, they had their children and their grandchildren, and then they separated. And they went and they lived the rest of the years in a monastery, not out of lack of love, but out of a desire to love and no longer be married. But it was mutual decision. It was not an acrimonious divorce. Now, I'm not saying this is correct for every everyone, but I want people to understand that we do have a tradition where people decide marriage is good for a time and then it's no longer good. Retirement is kind of a wicked concept, to be honest. When you reach a certain age where you can't continue to do what you did in your middle years and you are burdened with less physical work and other types of work, that's an opportunity to refocus your loyalties. That, I think, is the point. When you retire and you no longer have a day job, great. You have more time to go work at the soup kitchen. You have more time to study scripture. You have more time to visit those who are sick or whatever. That's the point. If your priority is correct, whatever state you find yourself in, you will realign your behavior correctly in your situation. In the old country and traditional societies, the one who's retired, who's no longer able to work, is the one who has the most wisdom. So, in fact, you have a duty to teach once you have finished your physical working life. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she has passed her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. Here Paul is being deferential towards a young woman in a man's charge in a patriarchal society. He is showing the one who has custodianship for this young virgin, let her live her life. Don't ever take what I'm saying about virginity and make it a mechanism of your power to glory in the flesh of a young virgin woman because maybe she wants to get married maybe she wants to live life it's not your place to get in her way when you're the head of the house you have a certain authority that you are expected to act upon in this case here he's saying you can't use your power as the father to impose virginity because if you're imposing virginity, it would be that you're assuming one state over the other, which you're not allowed to do because he's saying neither state is better. The gospel does not teach virginity, and the gospel does not teach marriage. The gospel teaches loyalty to the gospel, which is difficult because it's loyalty to a teaching that undermines you personally. 
So heaven forbid, this is what Paul is saying, heaven forbid you take anything I say as if it were the word of Apollo versus the word of Paul as he was talking in the early chapter and use it to cause division. So I'm making absolutely certain you don't do that. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So at the same time, if in a particular situation, according to conscience, a father sees the need to protect his daughter's virginity and to keep her in his household, it's up to God to judge. So he's telling you don't lord your authority, but he's saying at the same time, you can't be sure that when someone keeps his daughter that he's lording his authority. It's beautiful. Paul is repeatedly playing both sides. So then both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. Isn't that interesting? Better in the sense that now his daughter can focus on the gospel, but not better if you think your daughter should focus on the gospel and you deny her love. You don't have a right to do that. And this is, of course, tricky when you're one in authority and you're commanded to submit. How do you exercise authority in submission? This is why the judgment all throughout Scripture is much heavier in judgment against leaders. Because they have this responsibility not to second-guess themselves. It's not about second-guessing. You have no right to second-guess yourself as a leader. Because there's only one decision, which is that you are wrong. And once you lead on the basis of that premise, you lead with power from a position of being wrong because the power you wield is the wisdom of God's instruction. Because a priest speaking to a father in the parish who's agonizing over his children has only one responsibility, to speak with absolute patriarchal authority the word of the cross which is to undermine the father in his relationship with his children so that he wouldn't mistreat them. Very simple. It's not about figuring out what the father should do and what's right and what's wrong per se. It's about undermining the father so that he wouldn't stumble over his own self-righteousness in his dealing with his children. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. In other words, do whatever. Be single, be married, remarry, as long as it is in the Lord, meaning in service of the Lord's wisdom, everything is under control. Widows can get married. I'm not saying that they should remain single. But in my opinion, you know, when Paul keeps talking this way, it's almost as though he's training you Mm -hmm. to differentiate between your opinion and what is authoritative. Your opinion in Jerusalem is that circumcision is wonderful. Your opinion is that you like long liturgies. Your opinion is you prefer this iconographic style or whatever. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. Let people be. You have only to love people. That's difficult. People don't want to hear that. They want to hear that their way of doing things is right and the others are wrong. You're not going to find that here. You have to differentiate between human opinion and divine authority. That's what's happening in chapter 7. With with Paul, there's two priorities. There's number one, which is love. There's number two, which is everything else. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I also have 
the Spirit of God. Meaning that he is able to manifest the teaching and teach what God is teaching. But don't latch on to what I'm saying as your ontological truth, because then we're back to square one. Somebody saying, I am for Paul or I am for Apollos. And let's not think that Paul is all about making sure everyone's happy. That's not what he's saying here. I'm sure that's not the case. Thanks very much, Dr. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.